0: Good afternoon, good evening. This is Dove Tusman, and you're back on equal footing. We've got another show from out of studio doing this call from the heart of Mormon country, from Utah, from outside of Salt Lake City, the beautiful little town of Park City. Got to come here if you don't know Park City, Utah. Beautiful place. I used to have a home here. I used to spend a lot of time here. It's nice to be back, and we figured in honor of being in Utah, we would do a show that touches on the Church of Latter-day Saints. The Mormons, the Mormon church, based here in Salt Lake City, about 45 minutes away from where I'm doing the, the show tonight. And of course we're on a Jewish network, so how do we tie these two topics in? Well, voila, it's not very hard. Did you know that there is an odd, you know, I shouldn't say odd, I don't want to be pejorative, no hara here, there is a fascination, let's not put a value judgment on it, between the Mormon church or I should say it's kind of unrequited. It's a little bit unidirectional. There's a fascination by the Mormon Church around the Jewish people. There's a theological connection. We're going to hear about that. There's an ongoing attempt to even convert posthumously Jews, Holocaust victims. Uh, yes, you heard me right. Uh, posthumously convert people to the Mormon Church, Jews in particular. There's a lot to unpack here. I'm joined by a couple of esteemed historians. One's been on the program before, and I'm really excited to welcome a new guest, Alisa Landry. Alisa is calling in from New Mexico. She's a journalist. She's a scholar. She's based actually on the Navajo Nation in new mexico it's the largest native american reservation and elisa we got a promise from you someday we want to do a show on the trail of tears and 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 touch on the native american experience and we're going to get you on that show but for now we're talking about the uh the church of latter-day saints you're a member of the church of latter-day saints you grew up as a mormon even though you're based in new mexico you've been uh in arizona and in utah And, Alisa, you're an associate professor of of, of English. You've uh, earned your bachelor's degree at the most famous Mormon University, BYU, Brigham Young Young University here in Utah. Uh, Alisa, you hold a master's degree in journalism and creative nonfiction and in interfaith leadership. Alisa is currently getting her Ph.D. at Gratz College. She's actually working with our other guest on this topic, and she's writing her dissertation specifically about the controversy Surrounding the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Doctrine of Posthumous Baptism of Jewish Holocaust Victims, as I said there at the outset. Alisa, welcome to Equal Footing. Thanks. All right, we seem to be having an audio difficulty. Hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll hear you in a minute. I'm going to introduce our other guests for the moment, uh, Dr. Paul Finkelman. Professor Finkelman's been on the program before. It's just a font of wisdom, and in the background is often a help to us as we're Programming, especially topics that, that touch on both uh, Jewish and secular history. Professor Finkelman is the former president of Gratz College. Gratz is the oldest independent Jewish college in the United States. It's, out, it's located outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, Dr. Finkelman is now the chancellor of Gratz, and he's currently writing a book on the Jews and the American Revolution, a topic we have covered as well on equal footing. Professor Finkelman is a nationally known scholar. He's the author of more than 50 books and 200 scholarly articles. He's appeared on PBS, C-SPAN, NBC, Sunday Morning on CBS, etc. Many of his public lectures are on various media outlets. He's published op-eds and essays in the New York Times, the Washington Post, USA Today, Huffington Post, etc. Professor Finkelman received his doctorate from the University of Chicago, his bachelor's from Syracuse and he was a fellow in Law and Humanities at Harvard Law School. He's also written a number of articles specifically on Jewish law, American Jewish history, and the freedom of religion. Professor Finkelman, welcome back to Equal Footing. It's a delight to be here. Professor Finkelman, since we may be having a sound difficulty with Elisa for the moment, let's kick us off a little bit. We're not going to do intro to Mormonism on this show. Maybe we will at another point. But help folks who who may have just a passing familiarity with the Church of Latter-day Saints understand uh, what what is Mormonism, generally speaking? When did it start? And is there an original connection to Judaism? Okay, so Mormonism is started by a
1: man named Joseph Smith, who was born in Vermont in 1805 when he's 12. His family moves to uh, Palmyra, New York, which is just outside of Rochester. Although it's not suburban, Palmyra is still very rural. He grows up in Palmyra. Uh, early in his life, he has a number of visions, uh, and when he is... Um, Quite young, uh, just 21, he finds or discovers, uh, and of course some people would say he didn't discover he made it up, but that's the difference between, I, I suppose, belief and uh, external analysis. But anyways, he proclaims to the world that he has found golden plates uh, written in an archaic Middle Eastern language that he doesn't understand, but uh, that an angel provides him with uh, magic spectacles to read these, and he translates these uh, golden plates, and they are the story of people who left ancient Israel and uh, ended up in uh, the... Uh, central part of New York State, near what is today Rochester, and this leads to the Book of Mormon. Uh, he publishes the Book of Mormon in 1830, and at the same time, he, fi- he is the founder of the Mormon Church at that time. Um, so just from the very beginning,
0: there's a connection to Israel.
1: He learned Hebrew in his journey early on, right? well so so, give me a minute or two to get him to the Hebrew class, okay. It took me longer <laughs> than that as a boy, but we can get it to him in a in a, in a minute or two so the mormons um, uh eventually uh, very quickly after uh, he he writes the book, produces and publishes the Book of Mormon, he goes out to uh Ohio he lives in Ohio for a while in Northern Ohio and then um, he briefly moves to Missouri then he moves back to Ohio and he lives in Kirkland Ohio um, from about 1831 to 1838. And during that period, he builds a town, he builds a community, he grows a very large church. He is living in what is known as the Second Great Awakening, which is a time when there is all kinds of religious revivalism all over the United States, particularly in uh, in the upstate New York region, central New York, Rochester, Syracuse, uh, Oneida, where Smith is from— uh, not only do the Mormons come out of this area, but the Adventist church comes from this area. The Shakers are reborn in this area and have a major revival just about the same time. Um, the Oneida community uh, is developed there, which has um, what today some people would call as unusual uh, uh, policies, including what we would today call open marriage and plural marriage and children being fathered, uh, by the same mother, but different men. It's a time of religious experiment, and, and Mormonism is part of this movement. So he moves out to Ohio, and because the Church is focused on this ancient Israel connection, uh, he wants to learn Hebrew. And this is where it gets really fascinating. He runs into a man named Joshua Satius. Uh, Joshua Satius is the son of Reverend Gershon Satius, who had been the spiritual leader of Congregation Sharet Israel in New York City, the oldest synagogue in the United States, the oldest continuous functioning synagogue as well, uh, and this had been... Uh, Stasis had left uh, the synagogue when the British took over New York. He moves to Connecticut. He lives in Philadelphia for a while comes back to New York. And Joshua is his son. And Joshua is out there living with the Mormons. Uh, some people believe he may have converted to being a Mormon. Others believe he did not. I don't think he actually did. But he teaches Joseph Smith to read Hebrew. So here we have this very odd... And I would say this is an odd connection. Uh, I think it's probably safe to say that growing up in Palmyra, New York, in the 18 teens and 1820s, Joseph Smith had never met a Jew. This is a world that is probably 99% Protestant. If a Jew wanders through as a traveling salesman, uh, Smith wouldn't have known. He was Jewish even if he met the person, but there's no Jewish community out there. There are very few Jewish communities in the U.S. at this time. And now Smith is studying with the son of the most important synagogue in the United States.
0: And um, hey, Alisa, help, help us out, Professor Finkelman, thank you very much for the grounding. Now, what's happening here is you have this explosion, you said, of this, of this new faith. And this faith, Elisa, you're a member of the faith. Obviously, Professor Finkelman and I are Jewish, and we're, from the, you know, we're, we're, from the outside looking in, you are part of the Church of Latter-day Saints. It, it's modeled to some extent, even the sojourn across the country, as an, as an exodus. There's an explicit, um, modeling, as it were, around the people of Israel. And there's this intimate connection, not only from the beginning of the early 1820s, 1830s, and the foundation of the faith, but to this day. Is there not, Elisa, kind of a a feeling that there's a special... Mormons feel very specially connected to the Jews. Help us understand that from a theological perspective.
2: Yes. Can you hear me okay? We can. Loud and clear. Awesome. Okay, perfect. Okay, so Joseph Smith again, he's the founder of Mormonism um, or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. He was really obsessed with Jews right from the beginning because we're looking at a new church or a new faith in America, um, and its founders really believe that this is a restoration of um, not not the primitive church necessarily, not Jesus Christ and that primitive church, but a restoration of Israel. So from its very beginning, we have. And I'm calling it an obsession because it kind of is um, the amount of effort and energy that early Mormons put into understanding Jews and also the Jewish scriptures. So when Joseph Smith... um, invited Joshua Satius to come and teach them Hebrew. It was because Joseph Smith wanted to be able to study the Bible in what he called the original language, which was not unusual at the time. But then Joseph Smith later went on and he retranslated or he revised the Old and the New Testaments to include restored language or this uh, restored truth that he was preaching as the founder of Mormonism. Now, Elisa,
0: my understanding is there's actually an explicit dictate theologically for Mormons and in terms of how they should relate to Jews and and kind of what they should do with Jews. Help us understand that.
2: So that's always a funny question to me. Um, I'm coming to this field not necessarily as a theologian or a historian, but as somebody who's getting a Ph.D. in Holocaust and genocide studies. So I'm particularly interested in theologies that kind of cross boundaries, if that makes sense. So um, I'm particularly interested in Mormon doctrine that seeks to tell Jews what their role is, in Mormonism, if that makes sense. So the easiest way to explain this is to talk about the centuries after Jesus' death. So we have... Uh, and going back to some of the Old Testament language, we have Jews that are the natural branches of the olive tree, and then we have Gentiles who are branches of a wild olive tree that are grafted in. Okay, so that's biblical language. When we start talking about the restored gospel and the new covenant and Mormonism, then we're saying that not only did the Jews go off, off their covenant path, but also the early Christians did. So the restored gospel is restoring uh, ancient Israel or the ancient Jewish customs um, in a way that's bringing back the true covenant or the true path. The thing about this, though, is that we have sort of a, a dual perspective on Jews. So on the one hand, we can look at the Jews and say, these are people who are under a separate covenant with God, and so we can respect that. But our theology at the same time says that Jews need to join us in gathering Israel, in uh, restoring the truth on the face of the earth, and preparing for the second coming of Christ. So what you end up having is a little bit of philo semitism and then a little bit of anti-Semitism.
0: Yeah, it's a fascinating mix. Professor Finkelman, before we go to our first break, uh, in in doing the research for this show, I I came across some of the more interesting stuff. That, that I'd ever seen. And we're going to get to some of this posthumous conversion stuff, this baptism of Elie Wiesel and Simon Wiesenthal and the Bavacherebe, and, and, you know, and so forth by by Mormons after the break, as weird as that, as that sounds. But also, I mean, in 1911, a time when there was widespread anti-Semitism in the United States, you have the Mormon Church which is basically in control of the government of, of, of Utah at the time, inviting Jewish agricultural uh, colonies to settle in the state. We unearthed in, in the research from a, a letter from 1928 uh, that was a, an, uh, guess an encyclical, or a letter that was distributed within, within the Church of Latter-day Saints, encouraging Mormons to call themselves Jews, to actually auto-denominate as Jews and to refer to Jews as Gentiles. There's a, there's a fascinating um, obsessive dance going on here. And the thing I want you to hit before we go to the, the break is what is this gathering concept that we kept coming across it, that, that the CLDS, the Church of Latter-day Saints, there's, a, there's an, a mandate to gather the Jews. What does this mean? Well, if you
1: look at both the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament, and the Christian Bible, the New Testament, the term gathering comes up. Fairly often, uh, for example, Deuteronomy 30, uh, and then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you, and you will gather, and will gather you again from all the peoples. Uh, Jeremiah says, I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of the countries where they have been driven. Psalm 102, when the people are gathered together, so there's this notion in both the our Bible, and in the Christian Bible, I, I could give you some Christian quotations as well, uh, which says, um, it, which uses the term gathering, and the Mormons are particularly focused on, I think... Creation of a community which requires a gathering and a community in a particular geographical place. Uh, by the way, this is not dissimilar from Judaism, right? Because uh, we end the seder every year with the notion of next year in Jerusalem, and you know, if I if I forget you all, Jerusalem, you know, may. Uh, May my right hand not work. I, I, I mean, there's all kinds of notions of place for Jews, Zion, and gathering Jews to return to Zion. And at the same time, the Mormons use the term Zion all the time. They refer to Utah as Zion. Zion National Park is in Utah.
0: So there's yeah, all there's this a lot, kind of gathering. On the Zionist. And, and i and, sorry, Professor. We're going to, we're going to hit our first break. We're you're going to have to back. break now. Yeah, with Alisa Landry, the journalist and scholar, uh, who, who grew up in the Church of Latter-day Saints, focusing specifically on this controversy surrounding the Church of uh, Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormon Church doctrine of posthumous baptism of Jewish Holocaust victims. We're going to get back to that. Dr. Paul Finkelman, the Chancellor of Gratz College and a great historian in his own right. We're talking about this odd coupling. The Mormons and the Jews. We'll be right back. I Equal Footing is brought to you, as always, in part by DocuVax. DocuVax is a very cool, easy-to-use digital medical locker. Your medical records, your vaccination records, your blood tests, your MRIs, your x-rays, they do not belong to the government. They don't belong to even your insurance company, even your general practitioner doctor. They belong to you. Get them organized. Go to DocuVax, D-O-C-U-V-A-X, on your Android or iPhone app store. And for as little as six ninety nine dollars per month, you can have all your medical records downloaded. Very easy to do. You can send it in a PDF, in a Word file, take a picture, whatever. And then you have nurses and doctors that are on call to you. 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, to explain a medical record, to validate it, to create some sort of reference. You can get a specialist uh, appointment without having to pay that unnecessary uh, GP doctor's fee. You know, your medical records should not be dispersed. You should know when you need to get an update on your vaccination or a a, a pre-screen like a colorectal exam or a breast cancer screening. Go to docuvax.com or download the Docuvax uh, app. That's D-O-C-U V-A-X. And Your information is always secure. You can share your medical data partially. You don't have to share your age or your marital status or other extraneous information, whether it's for a new school, a new job, to get into a concert venue, whatever it may be. So take control of your medical file. Sign up at docuvax.com or download the Docuvax app. And if you want to get a group discount, and if you're a small business owner, you want to provide the DocuVac service to your employees, like a gym membership type of uh, uh, perk, you can get a group discount by calling 833-859-1933. That's 833-859-1933. If you mention that you heard about DocuVac on the Equal Footing radio show, that's how you get that group discount, 833 859
2: one keeping on, keeping
0: on you are back on Equal Footing. We're talking about the Mormons and the Jews. Unrequited love. Obsession. <laughs> Let's get a couple of housekeeping things out of the way. You want to participate in this conversation? Call. Give it your best shot. Give us your comment or question to Professor Paul Finkelman. And Professor Alisa Landry, the number to call, is 718-303-9090. We are live on the air. That's 718-303-9090. Please be patient with our radio engineer. He sometimes gets overwhelmed to just let it ring until he picks you up. And if you want to text in a comment or question, we've already got a couple of interesting ones, you can text a comment or question by SMS or WhatsApp to 917 428 4062. That's 917-428-4062. Alright, let's get back uh, into this uh, subject matter. There's a lot of things uh, floating out there. Um, first of all, we keep teasing at it. Uh, Alisa, what is going on with this uh, posthumous uh, baptism thing? You have uh, Mormons. Apparently this has died down, but then you see articles that, that it's happening again that have uh, been en masse, quote-unquote, converting to Mormonism um, deceased Holocaust survivors and other deceased Jews. I should point out, because I want to preempt the criticism that I'm not uh, giving it a fair shake, that the Mormons also are posthumously baptizing lots of other folks, including, you know, Gandhi, the, the, the Queen Mother, Princess Diana, Joan of Arc, Elvis, even very weirdly adolf hitler i don't i'm not sure i don't understand this uh give us a little understand give, give us a primer on what is going on with this post-death conversion thing and why specifically jews uh are being the target of this posthumous baptism
2: okay let me be really brief um thank you first of all for pointing out that this is not just targeting jews um But Jews, and especially Jews who died in the Holocaust, and their descendants are particularly angry about that. So that's why you see this in the news a whole lot more than you see other groups. Um, But this actually extends to all people who ever lived. So essentially, Mormonism states that it is the only true and living church. It is the only church on earth that has a living prophet right now. And it is the only church with the authority to perform ordinances of salvation such as baptism so the origin of this baptism for the dead goes all the way back to joseph smith who thought well if everybody has to get baptized what about all the people who are dying or have died without having the opportunity to be baptized so mormons um as far back as 1840 and of course into today are going to temples and they're performing these baptisms posthumously by proxy for people who have died
0: I see. So it's a theology around people that wouldn't have had kind of the opportunity to be exposed to the Mormon Church. uh, Is that that part of what's going on here?
2: It is, uh, because this has to extend to everybody who has ever lived. You know, Mormonism is only 200 years old, so what about all those people who died before Mormonism existed? But then what about the people who never hear about it during their life? And then what about the people who maybe did hear about it but rejected it? So all of those people are given the opportunity to convert posthumously.
0: Now, do do you get, uh, pardon if I'm being a little crass, but as a Mormon, do you get kind of kudos for the number of people that you baptize, whether they're, they're living or dead?
2: So there is a little bit of, uh, I don't know, social currency, if you can talk about the number of people that you've helped bring to Christ after death. Um, I don't know that there's necessarily any theology that says that you are, um, you know, you have more credibility with God or you have kudos later, depending on the number of people that you convert. Gotcha. So So it, it, it seems that... Um,
0: this has been largely, because I don't want to spend the whole show on this, this has been covered before in the media. This has largely been shut down, right? There's been interfaith dialogue, and the families have expressed uh, that they, they don't want this happening. And for the most part, it seems the, the the Church of Latter-day Saints has honored that.
2: So there have been a lot of negotiations over the years, and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has actually said we do not condone the baptisms of Jews, and specifically of Jewish Holocaust victims. But it can be really, really hard to regulate that. So you'll you'll occasionally see news stories that come out with overzealous members doing the work anyway. Um, my problem with this doctrine, though, is that the doctrine is still intact. So even if we're not doing it, if we're not... If we're not uh, baptizing Jews or or Jewish Holocaust victims, the doctrine is still in place. So we're still saying Jews still need to convert, either in life or posthumously. Yeah,
0: so
2: that is. Not thinking, there, there's
0: you 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 touched on this earlier. There's a bit of there's a debate around whether. Uh, the, the Mormon Church is philo-Semitic, uh, kind of loving of the Jewish faith, or anti-Semitic, um, and, and only through the prism of, of being kind of patronizing, because it's, it's loving to the extent that, that a conversion then occurs. Where, where, do you, where do you come down on this as a Jewish historian? Well, I think it's really complicated, uh, because as, as Elisa
1: has just set out very clearly, the Mormon doctrine is is that all Jews become Mormons. If the Mormon Church were to succeed, then there would be no more Jews, there would be no more Jewish religion. Judaism would cease to exist. Uh, I think most Jews would say that is flagrantly anti-Semitic because you want to, in effect, destroy the existence of the Jewish faith. On the other hand, the Mormons would say... We don't want to harm Jews. We simply want to allow them to get to heaven. And here's where the crux becomes. They would then say, and we have the only vehicle to get you to heaven. And and so that's both philo-Semitic and anti-Semitic, because essentially they're saying, well, you know, the Jewish vehicle to heaven isn't really a, a real vehicle. Only our vehicle is. Whereas Jews would say, you know, quite the opposite. We would say there are, you know, Jews don't claim to have the only true religion or the only, only, that there can only be one religion. Uh, Jews don't go out of their way to convert other people. And so there is this tension. Um, at the same time, uh, I think you would find, say, in politics, that the Mormon church and Mormon politicians and uh Latter-day Saints leadership is about as pro-Israel as you could possibly get, right. uh, and they condemn anti-Semitism uh, at the drop of a hat. They're, they're friends of Jews in all of these categories, but then they want to stop being
0: Jewish. Absolutely. In fact, let me love on the Mormons for a moment so that no one misunderstands where I'm personally coming from on this show. I, I spent a lot of time, like I said, at home for over well over 10 years, almost 15 years in, in Mormon country here in Utah. And I always felt extraordinarily accepted. Uh, I was where I was living, was surrounded uh, by Mormons. When I was growing up in Columbia as well. There was a, a CLDS uh, missionary center very nearby. Um, some people feel put upon sometimes by, you know, it is a missionary religion. I didn't feel that way. Um, I always felt very welcome, and also, you know, let's 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 give some kudos where they're where they do. This is a religion that's less than two hundred years old, has over sixty, almost seventeen million adherents by most accounts globally, over seven million in the United States, you know. As Jews, we've been around for thousands of years, well over 3,000 years, and, you know, we've got, what, a 15 million uh, globe. obviously, one's a missionary a proselytic religion, one isn't. But just the expansion has been enormous. There's a lot of appeal. And you pointed out the Zionist uh, uh, connection. Uh, in, in the research, it was interesting to find that, like, the... Um, the Zionist Organization of America, one of the oldest pro-Israel organizations in the United States, the only time a regional director has ever been in place who was not Jewish was actually a former Mormon bishop who was a regional director of the Zionist Organization of America for some time. It's easy to forget, but in 2016, the presidential ticket of Evan McMullin, who was a Mormon, and Mindy Finn, who was a vice presidential candidate, who was Jewish. I, I can't remember, Lisa. They almost won in Utah, or they even took the vote in Utah. Um, and it was probably the most pro-Zionist, uh, most Zionist ticket ever uh, in, in U.S. presidential politics. A little bit of a presidential po- uh, historical footnote. But, Alisa, there is there is a lot to, 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 to militate for the uh, for the the philosemitic relationship, right? I mean, I think at least Mormons, for the most part, would think of themselves as as lovers of the Jewish people.
2: Yes, that's true. That's kind okay. of foundational to Mormonism is that they're philosemitic. One uh, well, of the arguments okay. that I make like, in why in oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was I was going to say that one of the arguments I make in my research is that uh, Mormons actually hold contradicting beliefs simultaneously. So while there is a lot of affinity and philosemitism, there's also a lot of hostility, and that comes to play often when Mormons meet actual Jews. And I say actual Jews because Mormons and Jews don't necessarily run in the same social circles. Um, A lot of the Mormons today probably don't know Jews or they don't know that the people that they know are Jews. Uh, So when there's a little bit of a clash, when they're in the same room, there is some hostility because we don't necessarily know what to do with an actual Jewish person today.
0: Right. In one of our pregame, pre-game conversa- uh, conversations, Professor Landry, you said that it, it, there's a bit of uh, asymmetry because in these interfaith dialogues, you have a very hierarchical organization within the Mormon Church that engage interfaith dialogue, and they're often with kind of quote-unquote random Jews. In other words, there's no, there isn't kind of a parity or symmetry in, in the, in the um, credibility of the spokesperson, and so there must be some very kind of odd dialogues that, that, that take place.
2: It is very odd, and I know that we've come to that word a couple of times already in this show, uh, but this is a little bit strange to me because Mormonism, again, is hierarchical. So we have a prophet, and then a first presidency, and then a quorum of the twelve apostles, and we have this whole structure, and so our beliefs are very regulated from the very top, and that becomes really complicated when we talk about interfaith dialogue with Jewish people because... The people who come to the table from the Jewish side are often scholars or rabbis, uh, representing all the different types of communities of Jews, and it's not—it's not the same animal, if you know what I mean. Um, it's not. It's not meeting on equal footing, I don't think, in a lot of ways. Right.
0: <laughs> Thank you for the plug there on the, the show. Now. You're welcome. <laughs> Professor Landry, <laughs> Professor Finkelman, we'll be right back talking about this odd coupling of the Mormons and the Jews. And when we come back, Alisa, I'd like you to tell us about the Jewish Mormons. B'nai Shalom. We'll be right back.
2: One way. Get you, get you, get you. one way or another. I'm gonna
1: Equal Footing with Dove Tusman is sponsored by MDCS Dermatology, your experts in skincare. With two Manhattan locations and four offices in Long Island, including Plainview and Comac, the dermatologists and skincare surgeons at MDCS are proud to be affiliated with the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, and New York Presbyterian Hospital. So schedule your next skin exam in one of MDCS's convenient New York area locations. To make an appointment, go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-DERM. That's 212-661-3376. You could even schedule a virtual video visit with MDCS's board-certified dermatologists from the comfort and safety of your own home. So go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-3376. And don't forget to mention Equal Footing for 15% off all cosmetic procedures.
2: I've been
0: All right, you're back on equal footing. We're talking about the fascination, uh, maybe that that feels a little bit pejorative, the focus, the interest, the philo that exists within the Mormon Church about the Jews, not devoid of controversy. I know as the grandson, the eldest grandson of Holocaust survivors, and in blessed memory, my grandparents who have now passed, I would feel um, I wouldn't be okay at all if someone told me that, my beloved grandparents all were, uh, were being baptized. So this is a tricky subject, but as I said before the break, Professor Landry, what is B'nai Shalom? This, is, this dates back now well over 50 years. It's 1967. They called themselves the Jewish Mormons.
2: Okay, so I don't know a whole lot about the national but what I understand is that they are ethnically Jewish, but converted to the LDS church. And the reason they are successful is because that they incorporate things like traditional Jewish songs, um, food, things like that into their LDS services. I have not been to one of these services, but I've heard a lot about those. And the more that I understand about B'nai Shalom, uh, the more it feels like it's similar to other efforts by LDS Church members. I'm thinking specifically about the Passover meal that is held at Brigham Young University. So there's kind of a contingent of Mormonism that's trying to grasp at the, the Jewish traditions and incorporate them into mainstream LDS Church.
0: Professor Finkelman, there is a listener who is pointing out they grew up CLDS, and they're pointing out that these baptisms are very much still alive and well, that they are still happening. When we did the research online, these are posthumous uh, uh baptisms uh mormon baptisms of holocaust survivors in, in particular the re- leading up to the research leading up to the show the research yielded that it seems the last uh, at least press reports on it date back four or five years what's what's the scholarship show you is this is this still endemic
1: so uh, the problem with the posthumous baptisms as uh Elisa pointed out is that while the church hierarchy has said, we don't do this, and she has pointed out that this is indeed a very hierarchical faith, uh, there's nothing that prevents individual Mormons from going out and doing it. And apparently, um, once they've done it, the church hierarchy doesn't interfere in any way. I, I mean, one one response from the church hierarchy might be to say that not only don't we do this, but we will expunge these baptisms from our records. We will unbaptize them in a sense. We will not allow people to put these into church records and say, we have done this, this baptism, but, but that doesn't, but right now that doesn't exist. So on one hand, the church says, it's not our policy to baptize deceased Jews, particularly those who were murdered in the Shoah, but at the same time, there's no way for us to stop it. And so, we don't know how many are going on. Uh, I suppose that someone, uh, and Elisa can probably speak to this more directly than me, someone could go into church records and find out how many are going on, but it's happening. It's still
0: going on. Um yeah. So this same listener, Alisa, and maybe this question is you know, best answer, by Professor Pinkham. I'll leave it on the table for either of you. Um Points out that, that we really should touch on Christian Zionism. And to our producer's credit, I have in front of me some, some research to, to, to go to. Now, Christian Zionism could be a show unto itself, but this, this is a phrase that I, as I understand it describes like a Christian confidence that the restoration of the nation of Israel confirms God's particular relationship with the Jewish people and therefore like this salvation relationship with all humanity through the Christian realm. Now, at least the, the Church of Latter-day Saints seems to be at the vanguard of Christian Zionism. I mean, dating back to like Orson Hyde scaling the Mount, scaling the, the Mount of Olives outside of Jerusalem in 1841, BYU as a campus in Jerusalem, there's a lot going on here. Did, growing up CLDS, was Christian Zionism part of, of what you learned? Is this as, is this as core to Mormonism as it seems?
2: It is. Uh, you grow up hearing things like, well, we hear about Jeru- Jerusalem and then we hear about the New Jerusalem. So Mormons believe that there are going to be two gatherings, one of the Jews to Jerusalem and the other of the other houses of Israel to the New Jeru- Jerusalem, which will be on the American continent. So one thing that we learned as young Mormons was to always look out for the return of the Jews to Jerusalem, and then the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, which would all be kind of signals that the the end of time was coming and that Jesus was going to reappear. So it's very much embedded in Mormon theology.
0: And Professor Finkelman, was my assertion correct that the Church of Latter-day Saints is, in fact, kind of the epitome of Christian Zionism, or is this more evident in other Christian faiths? Um, I
1: think it's fairly common in uh, many Christian faiths, particularly uh, fundamentalist faiths. Uh, and the uh, part of it is that, I remember when I was, I grew up in a very small town in the middle of nowhere. There were a hundred Jewish families, a tiny little synagogue. Uh, and I used to spend a lot of my time in the local museum because I was kind of a nerd. Um, or maybe I was at the beginning of my lifetime of being a nerd, and um, I remember the director of the museum telling me how happy he was about the creation of Israel because it is the um, it's the fulfillment of God's prophecies. I had no idea what he was talking about at the time, uh, but it's also important to remember that in the Book of Revelation, one of the reasons why we want why the Christians want the Jews to return to Israel is so that there can be a battle of uh, Armageddon. In the battle of Armageddon, of course, um, a lot of people are going to die, and a lot of them would be Jewish. So so I think it's a really complicated... Christian Zionism is a very very complicated thing. Um, the, The Christians want us to return to
0: Zion so that they can have their second coming, if that makes sense. You know, this note to self, we should do a whole other show on Christian Zionism, because it's a fascinating rabbit hole. We've got to take our last break. We'll be right back uh, with Professor Paul Finkelman, Professor Elisa Landry. We're talking about this special relationship, at least through the prism of the Mormon Church, between the Mormons and the Jews. Philo-Semitism, anti-Semitism, a weird mix of the two. We'll be right back. I, I'm laughing because this was probably the most fun show, and I don't mean any offense, Professor Landry. We just we do these musical interludes, interludes that we try to tie into the subject matter, and uh, this is a fun one because there's lots of shows. There's lots of music about unrequited love and, and so forth. Um and that's not to say that there's no love, uh, between, you know, from the Jewish side and, and Mormonism. There's an extraordinary collaboration in the Zionist movement and, and, uh, and, uh, Israel-American relations, etc. Um anyhow, I'm down a little bit of a rabbit hole myself. I gotta get to our other sponsor, Equal Footing, also brought to you by Mechanical Art Capital. Mechanical Art Capital is a very easy way to get Capital to get cash against your timepiece collection, your watch collection, or your inventory of timepieces if you are a dealer. Within 48 hours max, and often same day, you can just go to the Mechanical Art Capital app on your iPhone or Android device. Yes, that's three words Mechanical Art Capital. You just upload some photos of the watches, you get an indicative financing offer, and you get very reasonable. Uh, cost capital to do whatever you need, uh, whether it's buy another watch uh, or get financing for some work on the home or whatever, whatever it's needed, check it out. You can also go to mechanicalartcapital.com. Um, you can also uh, download on the app and get insurance appraisals for your watch collection. So download the Mechanical Art Capital app or go to mechanicalartcapital.com to get Easy financing against your timepiece collection or your watch inventory if you're a dealer. Well, we're in our last segment here talking to Professor Lisa Landry and Professor Paul Finkelman. We are talking about the special relationship between Mormons and Jews, uh, and particularly through the, the like, through the point of view of the Church of Latter day Saints, I want to get to a couple of listener uh, questions and comments. And first, there's an article, uh, Elisa, that we found in our research is actually from 2018, the, the Jewish periodical uh, tablet. And it was actually about a uh, person who grew up Mormon and has embraced the uh, Jewish way of life, in their words. And I was fascinated to learn, and please debunk. Um, these myths, if, if, they're, if they're wrong. But this writer uh, says that when they got married at a traditional Mormon wedding, that they, the, the spouses give to each other a blue and white talis, uh, the, at least it looks like a, a, a talit. And they also point out that there are many rituals performed within the Mormon temples that are derived from the rites of Solomon's temple. There are special dietary restrictions, special undergarments like the tzitzit that as Jewish men we wear. Um, And, of course, there's, like we talked about earlier in the program, the story of the exodus from the eastern United States to the western United States, the concept of a promised land, You know, Utah, Zion, etc., I had no idea that there were actually accoutrements in, the, in Mormon culture They were so directly tied. When Mormons get married, is it common to exchange uh, talit? Um, I mean,
2: there's no physical exchange of, of objects, is that what you're asking?
0: This is what this writer shared. That in, in their case there was that there was a sharing of the, and they made it sound like this was part of the ritual of a Mormon wedding. But I guess you've debunked that. It's it's you're talking about the Jewish prayer shawl, the Talies or the talis.
2: Yes. Okay. So yeah, there's uh, that. That's not a ritual that we necessarily participate in. Although there are a lot of. Jewish or to Judaism that do occur in the temple, uh, the temple harkens back to Solomon's temple. So a lot, of, a lot of the symbolism and the things used in the temple are going to be very similar.
0: Are the dietary restrictions, and we have an upcoming show actually on, on the laws of Kashrut, but are dietary restrictions, pardon my ignorance, within Mormonism similar to the kosher laws?
2: they're They're not kosher um the dietary restrictions are what what's called the word of wisdom, and that's where you hear things like how Mormons don't partake in alcohol or coffee or tobacco things like that uh They're not necessarily dietary restrictions as much as it's clean living,
0: gotcha there, there are a couple of comments. I'm kind of piecing these together, um, that are, that are being made by, you know, I, I think I have some friends that, that I used to be closer with it out here in Utah. And since this, uh, the subject of this program went out in the social media blast, some listeners that, that I imagine don't listen to some of our more abstruse, uh, shows on, on, uh, on, on Halakha or oral Torah, but this one crosses over a little bit. Um, so I, I would be remiss not to mention a couple of these points. Um, Number one is that it seems that there has been um, a stronger coalition, pro-Israel coalition, in the, uh, at, at the congressional and senatorial level uh, within Utah elected representatives historically than any other state. Professor Finkelman, does that, does that resonate with you?
1: You know, I haven't done a study, so I can't uh, say for certain. I think that that might be entirely plausible. Uh, but it is it is also important to notice that um, lots of evangelical Christians are very pro-Israel, again, because uh, the Second Coming requires the return of Jews to Zion. Uh, I also, by the way, know many evangelical Christians, not Mormons, who have satyrs, who light Hanukkah candles, uh, and who uh, would say that, well, since... Christianity came out of Judaism. Uh, these are our holidays too.
0: Uh, Lisa, one, one listener I, uh, has a... Yeah, go ahead, Professor Pickman.
1: I, I was just going to say I, I live in, in, in
0: I lived for many years in Albany,
1: New York, and there was a Christian church uh, that I would pass uh, quite frequently, which had a uh, giant Mogan David on its uh, uh, on its outside. And it was the, you know, the Church of, of the Rock or something, and they had Jewish stars as part of,
0: as part of their uh, symbolism. There's a joke in there, but I won't get to it here on the air. Ah. Professor, Land- <laughs> Professor Landry, one li- l- listener asks how common interfaith marriage is amongst Mormons in general, and specifically between Mormons and Jews.
2: So I don't have statistics on that, but I can tell you that it's becoming increasingly more common. In Mormonism, we look at past generations kind of in terms of, of blocks of people and the way that they adhered to the religious principles. And so we see it a lot more. The the teaching, though, still remains that if you want to have an eternal family and be sealed for time and all eternity to your spouse, you need to marry a fellow Mormon. Um, but again, that's not always feasible. So we are seeing a whole lot more interfaith marriages. And I think there is interest in interest in Judaism, like you just mentioned that article on the tablet, there are thoughtful Mormons who are seeing a lot of parallels in Judaism, so I think that those marriages are going to have a lot in common. Uh,
0: Professor Finkelman, there's a listener that has, I'm not sure any of us are uh, qualified to answer this, but definitely not me, so hopefully you are, (laughs) Dr. Finkelman. A listener asks why it should matter if a Jew is baptized posthumously it, it, does is there any halachic effect? Uh, I, okay, maybe it doesn't. Matter. And and okay, so
1: I, I actually that's an important issue because um, if you look at some of the public discussions of this in newspapers, etc. Uh, and by the way, some of this will be in Elisa's uh, uh, dissertation and then the book she writes from her dissertation because I've read some of it in reading chapters. Um, there are Jews who basically say, uh, this is a bunch of goofy nonsense and they can do whatever they want, uh, because it doesn't affect me and it doesn't affect my ancestor and my ancestor is still Jewish. And if they want to pretend that he's not Jewish, fine. I don't care. I that think other Jews, based on the rest yeah, of the yeah, yeah. right. And I, and, and, and I think other Jews would say that this is a kind of a desecration of the grave. It's a kind of a desecration of the dead. When we say of those loved ones who have passed away, may their memory be a blessing, it's kind of a slap in the face for somebody to say, well, by the way, they're now no longer Jewish. Uh, right. In in law in law there is something known as intentional infliction of emotional distress. And you can actually sue somebody and win damages for intentional infliction of emotional distress. And I think um, that one could make the argument I'm not suggesting there'd be lawsuits over this and the First Amendment might preclude them. But I am suggesting that when a Mormon converts my ancestor to being a Mormon, that is plausibly an intentional infliction of emotional distress on me, mm-hmm. and certainly on, on my relatives. Uh, so, and and so that's and, the split. Yeah. You know, it
0: that's, that it that, that's the division. And there wasn't as far back as 1995. There, there was a joint agreement between the Church of Latter Day Saints and the American Gathering of, of Holocaust survivors, um, trying to put an end to this for some of these same reasons. The emotional distress is causing, yeah. causing family. So, may not have a halachic effect, uh, but it certainly um, has a has a, an effect on on on. Um, yeah, there's there's an emotional reaction. We're coming up. And, on time. And, and, I want it, to. It's, it's like. You it, yeah let'm go I ahead of mine because i want i want to ask you for some advocacy heres the end but go ahead make your point
1: I, I was I was just gonna say it's also just not very nice you know na- neighbors shouldn't be messing with
0: other people's dead relatives right. Well, on that note, that's a good segue, Professor Finkelman. I want to ask you guys, as we often do on the show, to kind of try to take the the opposite advocacy, the devil's advocacy, if you were, uh, if you will, and and conclude just we have a, just a couple minutes each here at the end, uh, a minute or two. Professor Landry, if you could make the argument that in fact um, that the, that the Mormon Church is in some of these things, rituals and perspectives, anti-Semitic. And if you could conclude, Professor Finkelman, uh, making the argument that, in fact, it's a, it's a philo uh, religion. Who goes first? <laughs> you go first. Professor Landry, you're on the spot.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm making the case that it's anti-Semitic?
0: Yeah, probably a little bit, you know, opposite of what each of you may in fact be inclined to think, but that's part of what we try to do on the show.
2: Okay, so this is something that I'm really trying to wrangle with personally in my dissertation as well as scholarly because I grew up really feeling like this was an act of love and of genuine caring and trying to pull all of the human race together and connecting them. So I very much understand that part. Um, If I were to make a case that this is anti-Semitic, I think it comes not necessarily from the practice itself, but some of the teachings of contempt that exist under the surface that allow this to be a practice that we're still doing. That's where I think we need more work is looking at those doctrines and teachings that are actually anti-Semitic that feed into this practice.
0: And Professor Finkelman, Conclude us on a, on a sunny note that the Church of Mormon is, in fact, phylo-semitic. Um,
1: I'm going to hedge my bet here, because what I'm going to say is is that I think the intent of Mormons is phylo-semitic. That is, the intent of the Church is that we would like you and your ancestors to go to heaven, and therefore we want to share with you our key to unlocking the door to heaven. And and so in that sense, it is certainly not like, you know, uh, classical anti-Semitism, where it's essentially saying, we hate you, and we would like to destroy you. You know, uh, to use the ultimate anti-Semitism, the Nazis didn't want the Jews to go to heaven. They wanted to simply wipe them out. And there's no way out. You know, no matter what you do, you can't escape the Shoah if the Nazis get a hold of you. Um, and so in that sense, the Mormons are saying, you know, we don't want to harm you. We don't want to hurt you. We want to give you something. Please take our gift.
0: It's a little Uh, bit, uh, it's a a a little bit patronizing, but I do understand the argument. And I'm going to read, I I hope I got this right, Professor Landry, Book of Mormon court here to end us with Dan 244. God is calling to the Jews. He invites them into the fold of Christ. He wants them to come and take their place in the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the kingdom of God, which will stand, shall stand forever. That's from the Book of Mormon. Professor Landry. Professor Finkelman, thank you so much for having this uh Can I can I add fifteen seconds? Can I add, 15 seconds. Got to can I add seconds. fifteen seconds?
1: Fifteen seconds. Okay. The Re- Recent story in the Jewish Daily Forward is that Elvis Presley always performed with a high around his neck and when asked why he said because he didn't want to be prevented from going to heaven on a technicality. Um the old head and, and and it turns out Elvis' maternal
0: grandmother and mother were both Jewish. So there you go. <laughs> well, oh, you can't hurt ending on an Elvis, on Elvis note. We hope to get you guys back in the program. Professor Landry, we'd love to get you back talking about the Navajo Nation. Thank you both for joining us.
2: Thank you. Thank you.